All right. You know, I, um, I still can't get over how beautiful this place looks. I'm really grateful for those. Pull it down. All right, too, a little too loud. Thank you, Mikey. Um, I can't get over how beautiful this place looks. I'm grateful for Alini and Danielle who put all this time. And, you know, I was actually surprised. I came in here last week and it was already decorated. I'm like, they never asked me to help move anything. Or... And then this picture popped up on my Facebook feed from the last time I tried to help <laughs> decorate the church. Um, and what you can't see under here because we'd already extricated him is Marge's husband, Nassim, was under the tree when it fell, and I felt uh, guilty that I almost killed a small Jewish man in a church with a Christmas tree. <laughs> so, did not have that issue this year. We're all good. They don't let me touch any of the Christmas ornaments, and that is totally as it should be. All right, so if you have a Bible, turn with me. Oh, by the way, my name's Eric. I'm the pastor here. Nice to meet you. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. If you are just joining us, we have been in a series over the last several weeks um, in which we've been kind of unpacking the single most influential sermon that has ever been delivered. And although it was given some 2,000 years ago on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, it still continues to resonate into our hearts today. It still has a powerful message that we need to get. And, And if you're just kind of joining us mid-conversation in this, let me go ahead and give you a a real quick kind of, uh, just a little bit of context. Jesus is just beginning his public ministry. He's been traveling around, teaching in synagogues, sharing the good news that the kingdom of God is is at hand, so repent. And and, and not only is he speaking with authority, unlike the, the regular rabbis who would just quote a, a bunch of other rabbis, he speaks as if he actually understands the heart of God. And, and, and not only that, but he also backs up what he's saying with powerful works. He's been healing people, driving out demons, and people are beginning to talk. Word is spread. And so people begin to come from all over the Galilean region, and they find Jesus and his, his small band of disciples, at this point, he hasn't even invited all of them, but he's got a small handful of disciples with him. Some of them are there because they want to discredit Jesus as a charlatan, as a false teacher. Others are there because they're hoping that perhaps this is the long-awaited Messiah people have been waiting centuries for. Others are there because they're hoping that Jesus will do in their life what he's done in so many other people's lives, that he will heal them, that he will bind up their woundedness. And some people are just there for the free food. Right? They're like, hey, maybe he'll feed us. Maybe we'll get something out of this. Hey, where's everybody else going? Let's go with them. But for whatever led them to that point that day, Jesus sees this crowd and he recognizes that this is an opportunity for him to explain the difference between life lived trying to build our own little kingdom, trying to get everything that we want so we can be comfortable and so that our will will be done in this world and a life lived as a citizen of the kingdom of God, where God's will is done, where God's will is carried out, where we say, God, whatever values you value, I want to value. The things that break your heart, I want those to break my heart. I want to be the kind of person that reflects your heart, that loves people even when they're a little bit unlovable. The kind of person who gives grace and forgives even people who hurt me, 
that I'm willing to turn the other cheek rather than try to go eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Kind of person who is willing to pursue peace as opposed to continuing to split apart. That's the kind of person that I want to be. And so Jesus begins to unpack what it looks like to live for God as opposed to living for ourselves. And last week we looked at how it completely changes the way that we approach our worry. Jesus says, don't worry, but he wasn't just giving some platitude. Hey, don't worry, be happy. He was saying, don't worry because you have a father in heaven who is God, he's good, and he is for you so you can rest in him. So keep your eyes fixed on him. And when you do, he will take the things of your life that matter. Okay, the circumstances, the things that are overwhelming, the things that we are tended or that we are tempted to worry about, those still matter. They don't go away. But when we can keep our eyes on him, it helps put those things into perspective. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And he helps us to walk through storms. So we looked at that last week. And now he, he transitions a little bit in Matthew chapter 7. So let's go ahead and read this because now he's going to focus on interpersonal relationships. I loved having Claire and Kelly share today because really they, you know, siblings are a perfect example of that interpersonal relationship where you love someone and at the same time sometimes there's some conflict. And how do we work through those things? Jesus is now going to speak to the people that are there about how we interact with other imperfect people. So do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all this time there's a plank in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So don't give to dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them underfoot, then turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for a piece of bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now I would imagine that at a first reading, just from a, a cursory glance, it might seem as if Jesus, who is now winding up his Sermon on the Mount, it might feel like he's just grabbing some of the points that he wanted to make and didn't really have space for him in the rest of the thing. He's just grabbing some of these things out of his bag and throwing them up on the board in no particular in, um, kind of order. It, it might feel as if this doesn't build off itself, but in reality, Jesus is utterly focused on one point and he's trying to drive it home and it all is summed up in that very last verse that we just looked at let's go back to verse 12 for a moment in everything do to others what you would have them do for you for this sums up the law and the prophets that is pretty much like the thesis statement of the entire sermon on the mount when it comes to our interpersonal interactions with other people treat other people the way you would want them to treat you 
That is the only point you need. Everything else that we will talk about is commentary. That's the point. If you take one thing away from today, I'm just going to highlight it now. Take this piece away. If when it comes to interacting with other people, other imperfect people, just like we are imperfect, treat them the way that we would want them to treat us. And you, you have a, a good handle on the heart of God. But then he, he explains some of the ways that we can do that. And the first way he starts doing that is when it comes to judging other people. Let's look at verse 1 for a moment. Don't judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. Now, this is not simply talking about our immediate impressions of people when we see them. Right? You're walking down the street. You see somebody with tattoos all the way up to the side of their face. I, I ran into a guy at the park this week exactly like that. Tattoos all over his body. And my first impulse was just to kind of go, oh, that person doesn't feel all that safe perhaps, or whatever, whatever your snap judgment about that person is. Those are the kind of things that we need to begin getting over. The funny thing is that when I finally walked up and, and was standing next to him, I realized he was the father of one of my son's good friends. And it's like, oh, okay, good to know you, get to know you and stuff. Had a great conversation. He's a wonderful individual. But I had to first deal with my initial impressions of this person. And Jesus is saying, it's more than just that, though, because when we judge somebody, what we are doing is we are taking a kind of morally superior posture towards that individual. We're saying, I am above you. I am in the position of judge, and you are in the position of a defendant, and I have the right to determine not only your value, but even your eternal trajectory based upon whatever information I have. And we do this all the time without even realizing we're doing it whether it's somebody that we come across at the park, interacting with them, somebody that we see as we're driving down the street, somebody perhaps sitting around you and you, ha- you make snap decisions about them. Maybe it's somebody who says something to you and we, we determine their value based upon the language they use, the, the, the tone of voice they use, or their actions. Maybe it's somebody on the news that we hear about and we make immediate decisions about how valuable they are, and how trustworthy they are, and ultimately whether or not they are a believer based upon whatever limited information that we get. And here's the problem when it comes to judging. At the end of the day, our judgments are based upon very limited information, and we tend to judge people simply upon what they do, And we use a completely different standard for ourselves, right? We judge people upon what they do, what they say, the way they say it. When it comes to us, though, we judge ourselves based upon our intentions, right? You say something unkind to somebody and they get their feelings hurt. You find out, I didn't mean that. I I know that sounded terrible. I'm so sorry, but that's not what I meant. I know I cut you off, but I'm in a huge hurry and I totally didn't mean to ruin your day and frustrate you. Whereas if somebody else cuts us off, that person's a jerk. We use a completely different standard for ourselves in someone else. And Jesus says, be careful. Because when you cast judgment, when you place yourself in your mind in a position where you are morally superior to someone else and you begin to look down upon them, you invite that same standard to be used against you in a heavenly court. And so here's the question. Would you want God 
to judge you the way that you judge other people. I sure wouldn't. Because I know what a jerk I can be. I know how selfish I can be. I'm well aware of my imperfections. And I know that he's aware of them as well. And I am so unbelievably grateful that when God looks at me, he does not see my imperfections. He doesn't see or he doesn't look at the way that I spoke to Kathy yesterday. Or he doesn't see the way that I snapped at my boys two days ago and determine my value off of those moments. I'm grateful that when God looks at me, he doesn't determine my value or my worthiness for salvation based upon my faults, but rather upon my faith in Jesus. That because of what Jesus did on the cross for me, I can, I can have relationship with my Father God. And, and not only have relationship with him, but I can call him my dad. That I can come before him, not with terror, as somebody who is about to be struck down because of their imperfections, but rather as a child who can crawl up into their parents' lap and rest with him because he loves them, loves us, and he is for us. And if that's how much God loves us, and if that's how he views us, then don't we as his children, don't we as citizens of his kingdom, and don't we as his ambassadors want to reflect that same heart? not taking a judgmental attitude that we somehow have the right to determine other people's values, but rather are people who are known for their love. Now, some of us would say, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm pretty familiar with Scripture, Eric, and aren't there plenty of Scriptures that point to the fact that we have a responsibility within the body of Christ to kind of call one another out? And if we see somebody sinning, aren't we supposed to talk to them about it? Isn't there something in there about that? And in fact, there's a number of passages. Let's just throw a couple up. This is one that Paul says in Galatians chapter, chapter 6. He says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, in other words, those of you who have had the Spirit of God implanted in your heart, should restore that person gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. James, Jesus' half-brother, also got in on the action. He explained in James chapter 5, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander away from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, Jesus didn't want to be left out, so he also spoke to this in Matthew chapter 18. He said, If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you've won them over. He goes on to say, but if they don't listen to you and they're unwilling to recognize the damage that their choices are making, then take a couple others along who also in love can come alongside this person and speak truth. And if they still refuse to recognize what's going on, then you bring them before the church and you have kind of the church um, leadership speak into their lives. All of these things are about helping to raise a brother or sister back up out of the pit that they might have fallen into, helping them regain their footing when they stumble in sin. However, how is this not carte blanche freedom 
to sit in judgment upon one another and kind of look down our noses at our brothers and sisters sitting in this room and saying, I get to be the, the, the spiritual cop of you and I get to tattle on you whenever you do something wrong. Because that is absolutely the antithesis of what each of these guys was saying. And Jesus right now addresses the posture that we take when it comes to that. So let's keep going now in verse 3. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all this time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, you mask wearer, you, you person who says one thing and lives a totally different way. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother or your sister's eye. I love the, the, the humor in this picture that Jesus gives, right? Hey, Jeannie, Jeannie, you got something in your eye right here. You know, and this, you, you, got, you got this little something in there. And this whole time I got a log sticking out of my own eye, right? Same issue. And isn't this just like life? Isn't this precisely, it's, it's funny, but it's true at the same time to the way that we operate. Because we have this ability to see other people's flaws and be completely blind to our own. And more often than not, the things that bug us about other people are things we struggle with and we may not even realize it. The things I get on my sons, and particularly Ethan, who is also a firstborn and is very much like his father. The things that I get on Ethan hardest about are the very things that I struggle with myself. In fact, Kathy will often point out the hypocrisy of my reprimanding him for wrestling with his brother too roughly or throwing a pillow at him or doing something. She goes, Eric, you just threw a pillow at him 30 seconds before. Where do you think he got the idea? Yeah, but I did it gently. That wasn't gentle, Eric. It was for me. It wasn't for him. And he, he felt it was permission. Eric, you do the same stuff. My dad. The things he got on me the most about were the things that he struggled with himself. He was always on me for fiddling because he was a fiddler. Not this kind, guys, okay? (laughs) I got no musical talent whatsoever. Um, So anyway, we have this tendency to see other people's flaws and completely miss our own. And in the process, Jesus is saying, wait a minute. If you even desire to come alongside somebody else and raise them up, you need to be willing to acknowledge your own brokenness because otherwise you are going to be a judgmental jerk and you are going to come at them with a holier-than-thou arrogance that will utterly destroy relationship and push them deeper rather than coming alongside them as a brother or sister and raising them up because at the end of the day, our posture is key. If you come to somebody and you acknowledge some of their flaws with pride and arrogance that you don't struggle with this or you don't struggle at all, then you're going to push them deeper and you're going to push them away. But if you can first deal with the log in your own eye, first recognize I am a sinner, I am broken, and I struggle. It may not be in exactly the same way this person is, but I have no foundation for my holier-than-thou posture and you can come with love and humility, then you can build somebody up and heal wounds. And actually, you're speaking into somebody's life, as awkward as that might feel, can be radically 
intimate and, and, and can create even greater community with them. I, have, I want to give you an illustration. I know I've used this one before, but it is such a powerful picture of the difference between coming with a heart that is blind to our own imperfection versus coming with one that is, is, we recognize. And that is back when Kathy and I were still dating. Uh, this is probably 15 or 16 years ago now. I was leading a life group. Uh, and there was this one particular girl in this group. And let's call her, let's, let's call her Dolores. Okay? Dolores, this is a totally hypothetical name, not the real name. Dolores was a single mom. She was wounded. And she had this tendency to gravitate towards my co-leader Jeff and myself and, and kind of just be near. She was, she was always, she was one of those people that did awkward hugs where she would just kind of linger a little longer than was normal. Uh, she was the kind of person that would come and pour out her heart to us, to Jeff and myself, and it left lots and lots of room for us to give positive affirmation for her and the ways that she was raising her son and other things like that. We saw no, I personally, being naive, saw no issue in it whatsoever, right? I'm just loving on somebody in my, in my life group. Kathy, on the other hand, who was my girlfriend at the time, saw lots of issue with this girl because this girl was a lion on the prowl and she was looking to make me her snack. And she got frustrated, not only at, at Dolores, but at me, because can't you see that she is a Jezebel and she's after you? And I know that at the time, Kathy probably would have wanted nothing more than for this, this individual to simply stop coming because she was a danger and she was disruptive and it scared her. And so... I love the fact that my girl has never been one to just write somebody off, and so she didn't do that, but she recognized there was something. Every time she saw her, every time she saw her hanging around or taking a second or a third hug when she'd already gotten a couple more before that, every time she saw her just gravitating towards me, beelining past other people to go straight to myself or Jeff, something happened in her heart where it just clenched up, and she was, and she used that as a prompting not to curse Dolores, but to pray for her. And every time she felt it, she, she would pray for her. And at first her prayers were, you know, the kind you would expect. God, make her stop. God, open Eric's eyes. He's so naive. God, just, yeah, deal with that, please. And she continued to pray for this woman for a couple of months, actually. She was praying that God would change Dolores' heart, and in fact, God began to change her heart. The first thing God began to do is unpack where that energy was coming in her heart, because the reality is that Kathy had come out of a broken home. She'd, she had seen people being unfaithful to people and seeing the messiness of, of that. She felt it herself. And there was a part of her that was so deeply insecure about our relationship that this woman was a true terror to her because she was a dangerous possibility. And that triggered her. And the first thing that God needed to do was begin to deal with her own insecurity. And as he began to move that aside suddenly Kathy could begin to see Dolores for who she was. Here was a wounded woman herself who had been cheated on, who had been left, who was now raising her son by herself, who was 
hurting and lonely. And so, of course, she gravitated towards the stable men in her life that were safe to get some affirmation that she so desperately needed. Was it healthy? It was normal. I'm not sure if it was all that healthy, but it was how she was coping with her own insecurities. And what Kathy saw began to break her heart. And so Kathy's prayers began to change. From God make her stop to God help her to see where this is coming from. Help her to see that she's enough and she's beautiful. And Kathy's heart really began to soften towards Dolores. Fast forward. A couple more weeks, she's praying, God, help her to see. And one day she goes, God, would you bring somebody into her life that can speak truth in love? And she felt God say, I have. And that person's you. And Kathy's like, oh, okay, well, if you want me to, then um, would you kind of set up the time for us to do that? Would you make it abundantly clear and would you prepare her heart for that? She kept praying for a couple more weeks. And one night at Life Group, Dolores came up to Kathy and said, can I talk to you for a second? And they went out onto the patio and she said, I, Dolores goes, I don't understand it. Everywhere I go, it feels like the women in my life hold me at arm's length. And it's only men who will welcome me in and treat me kindly and, and, and accept me for me. And I don't understand it. Kathy, do you have any insight? Had she asked my girl two months before, the same question. I don't know how, I, I know that Kathy's way um, more mature than I have ever been. So I would imagine she probably may not have done this, but she could have used that as an opportunity to smack her down. Use it as an opportunity to speak the hard truth that she needed to hear from a hardened heart that was herself scared because she was herself insecure. But because God had been doing the work over those two months with Kathy's initiative to pray because he had already removed or at least shifted that log of insecurity off to the side so she could see Dolores for who she really was. Kathy was able to come alongside of her and speak some truth with gentleness and love from a heart that was for her because she was utterly for her now. And that was the first of many, many conversations. And and Dolores became a very, very close family friend who was closer to Kathy than to me. And that is just, and I, and I look at that and I go, thank God that she did not speak what she saw in the moment when she first felt it because she would have done it out of a hardened, angry, scared heart. I'm so grateful that she had the maturity to wait and to process and allow God to do some work of moving the log from her eye so she could see the speck in her sister's eye and then come alongside of her in love. And I would imagine that there's probably some people in your life And when you think about them, even the thought raises something in your heart. There's an anxiousness. And maybe this person or these people, this family perhaps, maybe it's part of your family that's extended and and you're kind of facing the specter of, oh, we've got Christmas coming. They're going to be in our house or we're going to be in theirs. And I'm not looking forward to this again because it's going to be the same old thing all over again. And perhaps... The best way for you to prepare yourself is when you begin to feel those feelings well up in your heart, rather than reacting to them, allow that to be a prompting to you to bring those feelings to God in prayer. And my encouragement 
would be rather than simply praying for them, that God changes them, that you invite God to reveal to you why it is you you react the way you do, why it is you feel what you do. My guess is a large part of that is not theirs to carry. It's actually yours. We are blind more often than not to the logs in our eye. And feelings like that can be an invitation to journey into our own hearts and understand what's really underneath the surface. Does that make sense? It's not fun. It's not how we want to respond because we all want to respond by just getting it out or ignoring them completely, writing them off and having nothing to do with them at all. But sometimes God uses difficult people as sandpaper to sharpen and refine us so that he can use us. And sometimes once he's gotten us to a point where we have been able to deal with our issues, he then says, now I want to use you to minister back into this person's life or perhaps into somebody else's life. What about those people? What about the people that just don't want to hear it, right? Because you know that there are people like that in your life. That try as you might, if you try to speak truth, even in love into their life, they're going to disregard it completely. In fact, they're not only going to disregard it, they are going to mock you for that, right? Paul is, or I'm sorry, not Paul, um, King Solomon one of the wisest men who has ever lived, was well aware that there are people in this world who absolutely are not open to hearing truth in any way, shape, or form. Can we throw this up from Proverbs, please? Anyone who rebukes a mocker will get an insult in return. Anyone who corrects the wicked will get hurt. So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. Keep going, Mark. One more. Give me Proverbs 9.9. Got any more up there? There we go. But correct the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they will learn even more. Just because we see if, if we can somehow move the logs to the side and we can see what's going on in other people's lives, just because we can see something does not give us carte blanche freedom to simply wallop them upside the head with a good, loving dose of truth. In fact, there are some who will straight up turn around and tear you to pieces. Jesus was aware of this, which is why the very next thing out of his mouth is this. Verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls of wisdom to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and then tear you to pieces. Now, Jesus is speaking to a large crowd of people. Some of them are there because they are looking for him to stumble. They are, they are looking to tear him apart. And he recognizes that some of the pearls of wisdom he's thrown out before them, they are simply going to twist his words and use it against him. He also recognizes that not everybody that he's speaking to is a citizen of the kingdom of God. Not everybody he's speaking to is somebody that has embraced the gospel message. 
Not everybody he's speaking to is somebody that says, God, I want you to be my king. I want to submit my freedom to do what I want and to build my own little kingdom to you so that what you want, that's what I want. The things that break your heart, those are the things that break my heart. The things that you yearn for, those are the things that I yearn for. I want to be the kind of person who can love even the unlovable. I want to be the kind of person who can forgive those who do not, in my opinion, deserve forgiveness. I want to be the kind of person who seeks peace. The kind of person who is considered meek, which is strength under control, not using power to get what I want and control. That's what I want. But not everybody is like that. And what happens when we encounter people that don't share the same values and the same perspectives as us. How do we respond to them? Because I'll be quite honest with you. The community of God, his body, is supposed to be known by the way we love other people, right? He said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples, by the way you love. More often than not, we are known, rather, for what we're against, We're known for the things that we cry out against. We're known for the things that we say, this is wrong. And the ironic thing is that we tend to be more vocal about the people beyond the walls of the church and say what you are doing is wrong rather than looking at our own hypocrisy and recognizing that we are just as guilty as they are. In fact, more so because we consider it to be wrong, they do not. And you think of the number of ways in which the church has become known for speaking out and trying to control non-believers and trying to force our kingdom values onto them, even though they don't embrace the kingdom as their kingdom. They have their own kingdom where they are king and they get to decide what is right and what is wrong. And we say, no, 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 God is king. And they go, not for me. And yet we try to force them to adhere to the things that we have submitted to and the values that we have embraced. And is it any wonder then why people look at the church and go, man, they don't see loving people. They see a bunch of judgmental jerks who have no love whatsoever. And what would it look like? What would it look like for us to withhold our judgment and look at ourselves first. Because Paul himself recognized, hey, listen, it's not my place to judge those outside the walls of the church, but it is my place to judge those on the inside. And when he uses the word judge, he is not saying to sit as a judge over a defendant. He rather is saying, hey, it is our job to be aware of and care for the, our brothers and sisters because we all embrace God as our Father. We all say that this book, this, this, this conglomeration of other people's perspectives on God because God has laid these things on their heart. I have just done a horrific way of describing the Bible and I apologize. Backing up a second. We have taken these 66 books that were written by people throughout the centuries because of their interactions with God and the Holy Spirit has laid things on their heart and they wrote them down and said, this is what we have experienced God to be like. These are the words God placed on our heart and they wrote them down. And we say this, this is normative for our lives. Therefore, this should be normative for everybody's lives. And yeah, that would be wonderful. 
And the kingdom of God continues to advance, but it needs to begin here. And we can't look to somebody who does not consider this to be normative for their life and beat them over the head with it and say, you must obey it. And sadly, far too often, that has been the only approach that we do. So what's the alternative? Don't throw your pearls to the pigs because they'll trample them underfoot and then turn and tear you to pieces. A few years back, um, I was was sitting with another group um, of, of church leaders and we were wrestling with this recognizing that um, we had done a really poor job as the church of interacting with the LGBT community. We had basically held them at arm's length, and for lack of a better word, we have said, God doesn't love you, and we don't want anything to do with you. That was the impression that we were giving people by the way that we were addressing that community. And it, it hurt our hearts, quite honestly, because I know that that's not God's heart. And ironically, if we were to look at our own brokenness in the area of sexuality, we're not doing so much better. I'm grateful for some of the, the statistics that Pastor Jeff gave us a, a few weeks ago about the divorce rate within the church, but still divorce is existent within the church. Sexual promiscuity exists within the church. Addiction to pornography and lust exists within the church. We're not doing so hot ourselves. We don't have so much of a moral platform that we can stand on and look down our noses at the other people who struggle in the area of their sexuality. And we are lamenting the fact that, man, we are, we are known for what we are against, not what we're for. What can we do? And so after some prayer, we decided, here's what we're going to do. The AIDS walk is coming up. It was over at Angel Stadium. Let's do this. Let's invite people in our life groups and let's go and walk in the AIDS walk as the church saying we are for people finding hope and healing we are for people who are hurting we are not one of those people who would say that you deserve this and we're glad that you're suffering because that is the farthest thing from God's heart and it hurts my heart that that's the message that some of some people have gotten in that community we want to move towards them and say we we stand with you and so that's what we did we put on shirts that represented um, our churches and we showed up at the aids walk and we walked and as we were walking around the parking lot at angel stadium at one point across the street past the gate there was a group of people from other churches. I have no idea where they were from. But you know who they were. They're the kind of people who are holding up the signs, God hates and you fill in the blank. And that, there was a group of people that were picketing this AIDS walk saying, basically, we're glad. And it made me sick. <laughs> because that doesn't represent our Father's heart. That doesn't represent our heart. And we had some conversations around that part of the, the lap where some of the people that we were walking by said, wait a minute, you guys are with the church, right? Yeah. Why are you here? Why aren't you over there? And we had the opportunity to go, because we love you, because God loves you. And we are for finding hope and healing because we know that God loves all of us. And it was imperfect and it wasn't perfectly thought out theology. And I'm sure that probably raises lots of questions for you guys. 
But at the same time, we are just saying we want to be known for what we are for. Because at the end of the day, we may be called to to pick up and bind up and care for people within our own church. And sometimes that requires speaking truth. But when it comes to those who are outside the kingdom of God, people who have said, I want nothing to do with God, he says, I am going to use you as a light in their community by loving them. You will never reason somebody. You will never argue somebody. You will never Bible bash somebody into the kingdom of God, but you can certainly love them. And I would imagine there's a bunch of us here today who really wanted nothing to do with God because, quite honestly, we were fine being the captain of our own ship. But then God brought somebody into your life who just came and walked alongside of you and said, I'm for you. And as they loved you, you began to go, why do they love me? I'm not lovable. The truth is, we can't save anyone. All we can do is love them and point to the one who can save them. That's our job. May we be known by our love, not known for what we're against. So how do we navigate this? Because it's gray, gray, gray. How do we're supposed to call out and love some people, just love other people and not necessarily speak the hard truth to others? We need to first remove the logs from our eyes so that we can see them for who they are and then let God kind of prompt us. How am I supposed to do this? What's the answer? Give me the, the, the three points, Eric, so we can go home and I can just start doing it. There is no three points. But Jesus is already ahead of us because in the same way that when we were talking about worry, and he said, don't worry because God is for you and God is with you. And you can look to God and he will guide you and put everything in perspective. He does exactly the same thing here in Matthew chapter 7. As he begins to talk about don't judge, take the log from your own eyes so you can help pick up your brother and sister and don't throw your pearls to pigs lest they tear you apart. He then says, here's how you can know. Here's how you can glean discernment in the midst of this. You just need to look to your Father God because he's for you and he's with you and he is the one who will help you figure this out, just like he helped Kathy figure it out. It took her a couple of months. But he helped prepare her heart for that conversation. Then he set up that divine appointment. So verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Because which of you, if your kid asks you for a loaf of bread, will give him a rock? Which of you, if your child asks for a fish to eat, will give him a snake? And if you who are sinful and broken and selfish and self-centered, know how to love your kids this way, then just imagine how much more your Father in heaven, who knows what you need and has the ability to provide it, will give you. So what do you need? Do you need wisdom? You're not going to find it here. You're going to find it here. Do you need discernment to know when to speak? Then bring that to God. Say, God, Father, what should I do? How should I respond? How should I 
this email came in and it made me so angry. And the feelings start welling. God, how should I respond right now? And I'll just caution you. If you're upset, don't respond right away. Okay? That's just, that's a rule of thumb. I've made that mistake plenty of times. If you see something on someone's social media site that makes you mad, please don't react and respond immediately. If you feel like somebody has sinned against you publicly, Matthew 18, if you feel like they've sinned against you, then go just the two of you. Get together with that person. Make a phone call. Make it private. Don't make it public. But more than anything, God, how would you have me to respond? Would you show me what's going on here that's causing me to be so upset? And would you give me wisdom to know how to respond? If what you need is more physical, tangible, that too God will provide. Because what, God, what Jesus is saying here is wrapping up all of the streams, all of the threads of the Sermon on the Mount that he's been weaving so far. He's now wrapping it all up into this one point. You can go to your father because he is God, he is good, and he is for you. And you can trust that he knows what you need because he loves you. And he knows that you are his representatives. And it's, it, is, it is in his best interest, but it's also because as a father to his children, he loves us and wants to be able to give us good things. Now, that's not always, he's not always going to give us everything we ask for because sometimes my kids ask for ice cream. Often, my children ask for ice cream after they've brushed their teeth. It might be good, but it's not good for them. And as a loving father, I don't always say yes to it. And God doesn't always say yes to us. But we can know that he will give us what we need when we need it in such a way that he gets the glory and we don't. So ask, seek him out, knock, invite him in. Say, Jesus, have your way, guide me, because I want you to be the king of your kingdom, not me to be the king of my own little kingdom that only thinks about myself and perhaps my, my family. But it never goes any broader than that. And then Jesus ties up all the bows of the entire Sermon on the Mount in verse 12. Kind of the thesis statement that he has been driving at this whole time and he arrives at it and it not only summarizes the, the entire Sermon on the Mount, but it summarizes the law and the, 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 the Mosaic law that the people of Israel had been trying to follow for hundreds and hundreds of years. It summarizes all of the heart of the prophets as they began to speak to the people of Israel, saying this is how you need to live. This is what they were trying to get them to do. Verse 12, in everything you do, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums it all up. Treat other people the way you would want them to treat you. It's the golden rule. It's what we teach our children. We need to be reminded of it as well. So this week, I'll invite the worship team to come forward. This week, my encouragement to you is pay attention to what goes on in your heart. Pay attention to when you feel like you want to respond or react and invite God to speak into that. Bring that to him and invite him to show you. I love, I love the way that David put it at the end of Psalm 139. Search me and know me, God. 
know my innermost thoughts. Show me if there's any way that is contrary to you and lead me in the way of life ever after. Just guide me. Show me. Open my eyes to the logs in my eyes and the, the, the impediments in my heart towards this person. Help me to love. And if loving means speaking truth, then help me to do it in love. And if loving means simply holding my tongue and praying for this person and allowing them to get to the end of their rope, so be it. But one thing I know, we cannot, we cannot force people to change. All we can do is provide them with choices. Even take, take the, the most difficult things that we do, interventions, right? Right? Some of you have been a part of this. You see somebody who's hurting. I need to intervene into their life. And so you gather a group of people who love this individual. And you sit down in a room. And you read letters that you've written explaining the wounds that have been inflicted because of the choices that they're making, both upon themselves and upon others that they love. And even when we are the most forceful and forthright with our concerns. Even then, we do not dictate what that person does. We simply help them see the log in their eye. And we invite them to make choices. And each of those choices have consequences, but it is their choice. And even God does not force somebody to make a choice. He could have easily said every single person that lives on this earth is saved, done. Jesus covered the sins, taken care of, but he didn't do that. Because even God says, I'm going to give you a choice. You can choose to embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You can choose to accept the gift that I am freely offering to you. Or you can reject it. The choice is yours. My prayer is that if you're sitting in here today, and you have not yet chosen to embrace the gift that he's offered to you. Stop resisting. Because he is good. I know it feels like it's better to retain control over your own little kingdom. It's better to stay the pilot and the captain of your own ship. Just stop fighting it. Because I can tell you from personal experience, he's a way better pilot than I am. He's a way better captain, and I am grateful that he is my king. And may we be the kind of people whose lives speak truth simply through what we do, how we interact with our neighbors. May we be the kind of people who are known for what we're for rather than what we're against. May we be the kind of people who love, not the kind of people who judge. Because we have been forgiven so much. Jesus, help us to make heads or tails of this. Help us to represent your heart, Father to be representatives of love. And not just some metaphysical love. We want to be a representative of you. And use these hands, our hands, as you see fit to bind up wounded people, to help hurting people up, to come alongside people who feel lonely. Give us the eyes to see the people all around us that need hope and then wisdom to know how to draw near to them. But may we not do so with arrogance and pride, but with the humility of those who know how much we've been forgiven and how great it is to be called your sons and your daughters.
And so now your sons and your daughters want to worship you. Jesus, in your name.